Shift is brought to you by Eaton. We make the electric revolution work. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm your host, Pete Bigelow. Hi, everybody. This is Leslie Allen, and welcome to the show. Joining us on the show today is Mandy Bishop. She is the program manager for Smart City Columbus. I've always thought Columbus was a pretty smart city, Pete, but um, what exactly does that mean, Smart City Columbus? That is a good question, Leslie. Uh, For those who don't remember back five years, uh, there is a Department of Transportation competition called the Smart City Challenge that challenged cities across the country to, to come up with innovative transportation projects that could really better serve their citizens. And uh, in Columbus, Ohio, short version was the winner of the competition. And, uh, and today we'll talk to Mandy about what really transpired over the last five years, uh, talk about some of the optimistic goals of the program, what they were, what they were able to do, what sort of you know, reality-inducing stumbling blocks they, they ran into along the way. So a uh, really good conversation. And Leslie, it's, uh, it falls kind of perfectly time-wise because uh, obviously this week, President Biden has, uh, has passed his infrastructure bill in the Senate as of right now. And there's a lot to do with uh, optimistic transportation projects in the, in the Senate bill. Certainly. And what was really remarkable is that this was a pretty bipartisan effort. The, uh, the measure passed um, 69 to 30. And you don't really hear of that kind of bipartisan support these days in Washington. So, I mean, this is a lot of money. This is a trillion dollars. And uh, a lot of it's going toward transportation initiatives, um, including, you know, we've mentioned before, what is it about $7.5 billion for EV charging, you know, to really help jumpstart a nationwide charging network. So pretty good news for um, automakers and for fans of electric vehicles. Of course, this is all depending on whether or not this goes through the house, which many people are saying, even though there's some wrangling among progressives versus moderates, that this is most likely going to go through. Yes, I, you know, it's probably important to note that it's not a done deal quite yet, but, but to your point, uh, if, if it does soon pass, uh, there's a lot in the bill for addressing sort of the more traditional challenges uh, with deteriorating roads and, and crumbling bridges, but it also addresses uh, broadband and things like charging networks, to your point, and, and electric school buses for one uh, you know, for one other aspect of transportation in the infrastructure bill. There's some other things, Pete, um, keyless ignition systems uh, for automatic shutoff of, uh, of vehicles. I know there were some problems several years ago with um, people who had keyless ignition systems and they left the vehicles in their garages and did not realize the cars were still running. And um, this is something that could help with that. And uh, there's also a requirement to equip vehicles with detection technology that can prevent drunken and impaired driving. So that's something that's um, um, a pretty forward-looking thing right there. Leslie, I will confess I did not know that the keyless ignition uh, mandates were wrapped up in the infrastructure bill here. 
You know, I didn't know either. I, you know, until I took a look at uh, some of the stories that we were running. And uh, what this does is it sets deadlines for the Department of Transportation to issue rules for automatic shutoff of these keyless ignition systems, you know, the push button start. And I, if I, my memory serves, there were problems or there still are problems with people who have this keyless system and they may, let's say you have a hybrid or, or something like that and you forget to turn the vehicle off. People have done that. And then they will um, go in the house and the vehicle's in the garage and there's carbon monoxide building up. So this is one thing that will maybe help prevent accidents like that. This also includes updated headlamp standards and also a a requirement for vehicles to be equipped with technology that will prevent people from driving while impaired. So that's um, something, so a few little unknown tidbits about that bill. That's good. That that's good stuff. Uh, you know, I know that the headlamp issue has been another one of those ones where uh, you know safety advocates have said that our standards from the 1960s era are really out of date, and it's a really easy way to improve safety. So we'll look forward to diving into the details, uh, perhaps at a future date on the Shift Podcast. And you know, as we are taping this, Pete, some other actions are taking place in Washington. I know there was a non-binding measure that went through the Senate that had to do with limiting those uh, tax credits that have helped push EV sales. I think one of the one of the provisions would say limited to vehicles that cost less than forty thousand dollars, and people who earn over one hundred grand would not be eligible. And that's all part of that $3.5 billion budget resolution that's now um, going through uh, some kind of debate in Washington. So again, one other issue that we need to keep track of. Well, you know, Leslie, it's interesting because I I think this uh, ties into our conversation with Mandy really well because Columbus, as, as the Smart City Challenge winner, has had a lot of experience in figuring out where to actually deploy chargers for electric vehicles. Uh, had a lot of experience in, in figuring out how do they need to improve their electric grid by working with, uh, you know, local utility companies uh, and, and all these issues that we're seeing, uh, maybe not headlamps, but, but a lot of the other broad ones that are raised uh, on the electric vehicle front in the infrastructure bill. Columbus has had a lot of experience already figuring out. So perhaps, uh, as we say, without further ado, Uh, Let's go to our conversation with Mandy Bishop from Smart City Columbus and and hear about what they've learned. Mandy, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to have you on today. Thank you, Pete. It's really good to reconnect. Can we set the stage here a little bit by, let's rewind five years. Uh, It's 2016. There's 70-something cities that are applying to, to something known as the Smart City Challenge. What is the Smart City challenge competition and and what was the appeal of it from from a city like Columbus at the time? Yeah, the Smart Cities Challenge was really set up by the U.S. Department of Transportation to accelerate technology specifically related to data and transportation in a mid-sized city like Columbus. Um, And so what was kind of appealing, number one, we're a mid-sized city. We're um, almost 900 or around 900,000 people. And we... uh, you know, we have some great things about Columbus. You know, we're the 14th largest city. We're a fast-growing city. Um, we're very diverse. Um, but we also face a lot of challenges. 
And we saw the Smart City Challenge as an opportunity to invest in our community, invest in our residents, and help solve some of the mobility and transportation challenges that we're facing today. What is it, you kind of hit on this a little bit, but you know, when I think of cities that are at, are at the forefront of transportation technology, maybe I think of San Francisco or, or Austin, Texas, where we see so many startups who are working in this space. So why is Columbus, the, you know, as you said, this uh, you know, Midwestern city that's the 14th largest uh, city in the country, why, why is Columbus the winner? You know, again, Columbus has a very diverse population. And if you think about Columbus, we're a great place to test things. We're a great test market for political ideas. We're um, a launch concept city for a lot of restaurants. So if if people like it here in Columbus, they're likely to like it in a lot of different areas nationally. Um, We have great industry. We have a lot of diverse industry with banking, uh, apparel, um, pizza. Donato's is one of our biggest companies here. So there's just a lot of diversity um, we also have a great public, private, academic, nonprofit um, collaboration, and that's really called the Columbus Way. Uh, that's one of the reasons that we won. Uh, Secretary Fox was in Columbus in, I think, spring of 2019 at the Morpsey uh, Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission annual meeting. And what he said about Columbus is, you know, we won because we uh, shared some great things about our city, but also some not so great things. We were vulnerable in our application and highlighted some ways the technology could help us. But we also, we brought a lot of partners to the table and we had a lot of help. And so that's really why Columbus, the collaborative spirit, uh, they knew that we could accomplish the work that was laid out in the Smart City Challenge application. One thing I'm wondering about, you you mentioned partners and Smart City Columbus is a public private partnership. So how does that work actually? I mean, how, what was the process of bringing the partners together? So early on, um, I I always describe it best this way. We established our sustainability plan at the time of application. So we brought the private sector, um, one of the major leader uh, leadership groups, I call it our super chamber, and that's the Columbus partnership. It's a little over 75 of the top CEOs, um, in the region, so like Cardinal Health, Nationwide, Huntington Bank, those CEOs um, are all part of this uh, collaboration, AEP, who's been an amazing partner. And so they brought that organization to the table, which helps bring a portal to all these major companies when we're trying to uh, launch the Smart City Challenge. Um, We also brought other partners like the Ohio State University, the Ohio Department of Transportation, Franklin County Commissioners um, to the table because this was a regional, even though we were the winner of the smart city, our boundaries um, span many different uh, entities and partnerships. And we knew that we needed uh, all these partners at the table to help. Specifically, if you think about AAP and if we're trying to um, uh, add more charging to the region, we need to know about capacity. We need to know about where their transmission lines are. Where can we connect? How can we build a charging infrastructure that fits into their utility model, but also helps uh, get it get the electric uh, the charging ports to where people want to charge. Well, infrastructure, of course, is something that you've been working on um, even before this role. Now, Absolutely. as I understand it, you were working on roads and bridges before you started working on implementing these grants. So, what has that transition been like for you? I mean, planning something that's say on a twenty-year cycle versus something with a short-term expectation. So, I have had the fortunate, uh, been in the fortunate position to plan some pretty fast infrastructure projects. My last uh, project was a twenty-two and a half million pedestrian bridge 
in my home city of the city of Dublin. It's a Northwest suburb. Um, but the first thing, the biggest transition from, you know, being a traditional civil engineer was learning the terminology. So I had to learn to talk tech and I had to learn to speak electrical where that hasn't, hadn't historically um, been the background, but I had a great team. Um, we already had some electric, electrical engineers on board, some signal engineers, some people that have, are accustomed to driving very large projects. I'm talking about half a billion, billion dollar programs. So we were able to keep pace with that and learn the, the technology along the way. And I'm really proud of how we learn to be more agile and operate in the tech space um, and, you know, automotive and transportation and really create that, um, that merger and that ecosystem. So it was different, but it was fun. And I knew if I wanted to be a competitive engineer in the future, that I needed to do something uh, like this in order to advance both my career and my foundation and my knowledge base. Mandy, I want to delve into the, the electrification aspects of this and, and so many of the other aspects, but, but maybe before we do it, a kind of big picture question to, to lay the groundwork. Now that we're five years in, has, has everything that you hoped for been, been as transformative as, as you thought it would be in 2016? And maybe more on paper, what's left to accomplish in terms of uh, you know, projects to finish or, or grant funding to be, to be expended? You know, I'm gonna. My, I think everybody wants you to say yes. We accomplished everything that we set out to do, but we had a global pandemic in the middle of this. Um, so, from electrification perspective, I feel like we largely met our expectations as well as our goals. Uh, for instance, we sold um, over 3,200 cars, which translated to beating our goal of 1.8 percent of new car sales being electric. So, we did that. We had planned to install about a thousand charging point ports. We almost hit, we installed like 998 or 990. So we hit those things. When you think about the USDOT Smart City Challenge being largely largely um, a program that was collecting data uh, focused on people moving, we we started, we were launching our demonstration phases for most of our projects. We were supposed to start in April of 2020. Okay. The world literally stopped moving. Um I, so, so my answer is no, um, but I definitely, I firmly believe that we demonstrated the potential for the technology and we showed that technology can have um, a place in communities that really need assistance and really need connected to transportation. So we brought an equity component. We showed that transportation and, and we showed that technology can really help our residents help help them live their best lives and open up more opportunity uh, to transportation um, solutions like our Pivot app. It's a trip planning application that helped people get to and from work during the pandemic. We had essential essential riders using it to book cabs for their children and then get themselves to work via via bus. So. What do I think is left to do? I think there's a lot of opportunity in urban technology. Um, and as we continue to modernize our existing systems and incorporate new technologies, I think that we will continue to serve our residents in new and better ways and get to that place. You know how you're getting information pushed? We literally get the news pushed to us, right? Wouldn't it be nice to know and be, have um, information pushed to you about when your pothole is going to be fixed when you filed that 311? So we're working on that. And, you know, that's a, that's a long-term vision. 
Um, but those are the things that are still undone. It's applying the technology and the collaborations and moving them forward. Sorry. Really interested in the way you just said that, uh, and if I remember this exactly, that, that technology has a place in your communities, which, which I think speaks to the fact that, and I, I'm, I think I'm guilty of this too, like we look at this as a technology competition and development, but, but you seem to be saying it's about people first and foremost and Absolutely. what tools are in your toolbox to, to help them. Thank you for um, for that, Pete. That is absolutely what it is about. And that was our one of our guiding principles is we weren't going to just demonstrate tech for tech's sake. We really wanted it to solve a challenge in our community. And so if you look at all of our projects, they're really focused on laying out the hypothesis and trying to solve something that we were facing as a community. One aspect of that, it's interesting to think of the Pivot app. You just said like, on one hand, COVID brought all these plans you had to, to a halt, but the Pivot app was something that people were using uh, to get around during the pandemic uh, as essential workers. So it seems like on Silver Lining, you had something that came in really handy at, at precisely the right moment. Is that uh, how Pivot kind of developed in actuality? Yeah, that really is. And we had to, you know, we had we had all these recruitment plans, you know, of getting more people to use Pivot. We wanted to see tens of thousands of users but when the message from our governor, our president, you know, the world is stay at home to keep everyone safe, we had to be, we had to align um, our messaging and our context with what's happening in the world. You know, speaking of what's happening in the world and the Pivot app, um, part one of the consequences of COVID was that people started shying away from public transportation. So I'm wondering um, how um, have you enabled more people to use smart transit, well, public transit, I should say, and how are you working with your local transit authority to get people out of their personally owned vehicles and taking shared transportation? Sure. So I think first and foremost, I don't know that the messaging has completely changed yet. When the vaccine was being first rolled out, we were seeing rapidly declining, um, you know, infection rates. And people were starting to use more transit. And in fact, our public transit agency opened up um, our, they're called express routes to our suburbs. They opened them up, I believe, on May 6th. Um, so we're continuing to stay in alignment with what they're messaging. In, and we're seeing rising rates here in Columbus, Ohio, as well as, you know, in, in 40 states, we're seeing that. Um, we continue to support the Pivot app. And we're continuing to let people know that it's out there but we're also not trying to drive users to public transit until we see the pandemic. We're staying in alignment with the messaging that's coming from our transit agency, our governor, the CDC, and our Columbus Health Commissioner. I'm curious about the reach of the SMART Columbus program. How many people in Columbus or Franklin County uh, does the SMART City Columbus program touch? And is this geared toward a sweeping population or just sort of specific populations? So a lot of our, some of our projects were geared towards very specific uh, populations. The overall program is very widespread and stretches throughout most, most of the region, which I think were around 1.2, 1.3 million for our eight, nine county region. Um, so it's pretty broad, broad stroke. I can't remember the exact, um, oh yeah, we had the engagement of more than 100,000 residents and collaborators region-wide. We've also, you know, had interactions globally with Japanese companies, 
folks in the Netherlands. Um, gosh, I, I think it was something like, oh goodness, 80 cities in 20 countries have come to Columbus to learn. So it's both a global, regional, and national reach, or all three. Maybe one of those very specific populations that uh, that you set out to reach was, uh, I know that you were you're tar- looking to get mothers to their uh, prenatal appointments because Columbus has a very high, um, you know, rate of infer- infant mortality, sadly. How did that kind of get into the application, you know, first and foremost? Because it, it was one of the things that I think really made Columbus stand out. And, and then, you know, five years later, again, how are, ha- has that made an impact? So interestingly enough, the information about the infant mortality rates was in the application, but the project was not. And so we, um, I came on board in summer of 2017, and we really took a strong look at the program, and it had about 15, had 15 projects in it. And we really looked at how those projects were aligning with USDOT goals, as well as City of Columbus goals, brought in our project partners and said, okay, what are we going to stop, start, continue? Um, And the prenatal trip assistance app was actually one we said start. And so Sidewalk Labs had a contribution um, to the program and they did essentially what was the early, most of the concept of operations work that we could incorporate into the technical document and helped us identify. We knew about the problem. They helped us identify a transportation challenge and then uh, start to design a program around that. And so that's how it came to be. And we brought in Ohio State University to really help us with the um, the health, the health, the technical, and all of it. If I remember correctly, at least initially, part of how you were going to address that was, uh, you know, utilizing a, a self-driving shuttle uh, along certain routes to connect people with with better health uh, options overall, yes. perhaps. And you know, I think of like what technologies appear to be right around the corner in 2016, and maybe. Maybe this specific aspect is uh, is one where there were some lessons learned in terms of you know maybe maybe they're not really right around the corners. Is, is that accurate? Is that a way to to look at the AV aspect of this? Are you talking? Yeah, if you're talking about AV specifically, what we learned with our two, we had two de- uh, deployments. We had the Smart Circuit and the Linden Leap. And what we learned is the technology has a lot to offer and it has a lot to, a little bit of ways to go. Um, so I would definitely classify. Uh, transit style AVs as something that is not quite just around the corner. Um, We've worked with some amazing companies. They're doing some amazing things and they're advancing every day. Easy Mile was great to work with. Um, We're going to continue to learn, but yes, I would agree with that classification, Pete. We have more from Mandy Bishop right after this message. Eaton makes the electric revolution work. For mass adoption of EV technology, drivers are requiring more options, longer ranges, faster charging, all with safe systems. Harnessing this electric power enables an enhanced driving experience like never before. EV manufacturers are taking on these challenges, and integration with the right partners is key to that journey. Eaton designs and manufactures a wide variety of EV components. From the industry-leading Busman fuses and power distribution units to Eaton's cutting-edge circuit protection technology product, BrakeTor. 
With broad electrical resources and a long legacy of vehicle expertise, Eaton is helping to facilitate vehicle electrification today by working with EV manufacturers around the globe to deliver high efficiency, all while providing the safest EV systems possible. Eaton is improving the way the world moves in the future, because that's what matters. We make what matters work. Learn more at eaton.com slash e-mobility. Now, back to our program. Andy, earlier you mentioned some of the achievements that you've had in the area of electric vehicles in terms of getting, um, helping to sort of jumpstart the electric vehicle market in a, a, a bit in Columbus. I wanted to know how, how satisfied are you with the progress that you made with that? Extremely. If you think about trying to get people to, first of all, we were really focused on the early adopter. Um, and then, so that's a very small segment. And then you've got to sync up with they're ready to buy a car. And then you got to have product available. And <laughs> so if you think about all the challenges that we faced, um, I'm extremely pleased that we hit, a, you know, what was a small goal, smaller number goal of 3,200 vehicles. But nonetheless, we were very aware um, of, what the, of what that would look like. Uh, but I, I'm seeing more electric vehicles on the on the ground every day, and I do believe that's frankly due to Smart Columbus and the efforts of folks to get more product into the market, get more of them onto the road, and get more people exposed through uh, through the uh, ride and drives. Now, in terms of the chargers, you you mentioned working with AEP. Now, what about um, some of the other entities that you work with? Um, For example, did you work with apartment complexes, real estate developers, et cetera? How did you choose the locations for these chargers? So um, we did a a program that was called the MUD, Multi-Unit Development Program, and we advertised it pretty heavily. We did two rounds, and uh, we made direct contact with many developers in the region because, as you are aware, um, most the um, fuel fill-up model for an EV is really at home and at work. And it's not really still the gas station model we're all accustomed to. So we had to get um, chargers into those multi-unit development, so into apartments and condo complexes. And um, we reached out to those that were under construction. We reached out to those that we knew were in the planning process. Um, and generally, just um, we're very connected to our development community through the BIA, a number of different channels. And um, they came to us and said, hey, we want to do charging here. And we kind of looked at, you know, where we were heavy on charging, which was really nowhere in Columbus. So we had the opportunity to really get stuff downtown. We got it in the north. We got some in Grandview. And uh, it was great to work with developers like Casto and uh, some of our other major companies. When you talk about these chargers, um, were they um, level one, level one, level two, level three, um, level two chargers? Primarily level two um, in all the, actually, I only remember level two in all the multi-unit developments. Um, you get that little bit of a, fa- they don't need the super fast charger because they're not trying to keep on going to Illinois. Um, they, and they don't want those super slow. Uh, so we've been doing level twos. It's interesting to hear you talk, Mandy, about the uh, AEP and the role of the utility company, which which I kind of think of as like they're one of the unsung players in in making electric vehicles, uh, you know, actually pl- proliferate. 
what have they learned about the readiness of the, the regional grid to, to handle an influx of, of electric vehicles through this project? The great thing about a large company like AAP is, you know, EV uh, technology was not new to them. They watch market trends. They look at the industry. Um, they're sophisticated. And so they saw this coming and they, they've been seeing higher power demands in a number of different areas for a long time. So they had been really working to be ready. And they are, and they're continuing to improve their grid. And they definitely are the unsung, unsung heroes um, and enablers for this type of technology. Um, AAP's built investing in wind and solar. They still continue to have, you know, gas-powered plants. Um, they're divesting in, in coal-fired plants. Um, but those are industry and market trends, a lot of it driven by the fact that most people want to breathe clean air. Um, and most people want, and a lot of people want to uh, see companies that have a, a social conscious and understanding of the impact that they have. To loop back to, to something you said earlier about really targeting early adopters, I'm curious if, is it hard to get car dealerships in the area and or the auto industry in general to to kind of pump product in, into the Columbus region? Because I feel like uh, so many still think of electric vehicle sales being on the coasts and not not in the Midwest. So is that something that that you've at all had to address or is that beyond the scope of, of Smart nope. City Columbus? No, nope, we definitely had to address it. Early on, I'd say we had um, some difficulty, um, but uh, Zach McGuire, uh, he led and he works for the partnership. He led the efforts to identify the gaps in, you know, product. So what was available or not, um, listen to dealer, go to dealerships and see, are they comfortable selling an EV? Are their salesmen going to, men and women going to pivot to something they're more, they're more um, comfortable with a, you know, traditional ICE vehicle, an internal combustion engine. Um, but once we started working with the dealers and in particular, we had a strong partnership with Reichert, um, which is a very large auto dealership here. Um, we really were understanding what we what role we needed to play. It was training. It was uh, talking to the manufacturers to get more product. It was the dealer saying, we want more product. We're going to see some demand. Um, so those are all things that we had to face that, you, you know, you mentioned, because most people do think of EVs being out in Oregon and California and, you know, and other progressive areas of the country. <laughs> When you talk about more product, Mandy, um, every week it seems like we're seeing another automaker setting a huge goal for electric vehicles. You know, we're <laughs> going to have um, no um, ICE vehicles by 2030 or something like that. And I'm not sure if you can measure this and you can tell us that, but are we at an inflection point where we're moving the EV market from early adopters to the mainstream buyer? Leslie, absolutely. Um my husband is a car guy through and through and actually would tell me what's coming up because he reads the magazines online and um, knows what, what's coming in 2027. And, um, you know, he's the guy that can't wait to drive the Ford, can't wait to drive the, the Jeep that's coming here soon, the Wrangler. And we're definitely appealing to the, the, the mainstream buyer because it's where the market is going. Um, I think people are seeing more charging port, ports out there. So their uh, range anxiety is starting to subside um, and, and things like that. But I think 
I think the average folk, folks, I think they like the hybrid approach, the plug-in hybrid electric um, vehicles. And I think that's a good transition uh, that aligns with that inflection point. If I may, just for a moment, I'd like to shift gears a little bit uh, away from EVs and just to talk about connected vehicles. Now, uh, one of the things that we are um, curious about learning is um, what's happening with 5G and um, what role does 5G connectivity play in the success of of smart cities? Oh, my goodness. um, What can you do with 5G that you can't do with 4G? Um, well, 5G, you can actually operate uh, connected vehicle technology on. Uh, 4G has too much latency um, it, for it to be near immediate for the driver. You can't get that near real-time alert to the driver using uh, 4G. Um, so with our particular system, we actually have a fiber optic backhaul network um, that helps get that signal. And we run over radio. So dedicated short range communication. We're in that safety spectrum, that 5.9 gigahertz spectrum that's dedicated um, and under discussion by right now with the FCC and all the folks, um, USDOT. So lots of conversations there. Um, 5G is a game changer in general for communications. I mean, it's connected everything. I mean, in my house, I used to have an iPhone and maybe one computer. And now we have our TVs, you know, everything is connected and it's not just our household items. It's the items that we take with us out into the wild. So our cars are way more connected than most people realize, unless you take a look at the NREX data. So. Mandy, I'm curious, uh, since you brought it up uh, with the FCC, um, you know, really changing the safety spectrum, uh, you know, or at least it appears that's going to happen. I know that purchasing roadside units for V2X um, experiments was part of uh, some of the smart city grant funding. Does does the shift away from DSRC kind of eventually render those obsolete or, or is it not that dire? So it, the technology is not interoperable. Our, our units can um, take a CVDX chip. We can switch it out. Um, I think I think the thing that, and I was having a good conversation with, he was former ITS America president, Scott Belcher, uh, so before uh, Shalom Hot. And I think the difference in the technologies is that, you know, the D- DSRC was really, it was going to be government supported and it was going to be quote unquote free. You know, we had to invest in the infrastructure, but the airwaves were, were free. And if you look at the cellular technology, it's being set up for a service. Um, so there's going to be a different, there's a different model. Um, and I do, you know, we're still learning. We don't know if CV to X, how much uh, disruption it's going to have, um, how much interference. So we have a lot to learn. Um, about that. And I'm looking forward, I think I've seen some advertisement for some accelerated exploration um, from the USDOT. So I'll be interested to see how that that plays out. But it does render DSRC a a technology that'll be phased out. I think the date is technically, I think it's January 2022. When you talk about connected car technology in particular, or or anything else in smart city Columbus in general, do you, do you get a, a leeriness that people are reluctant to share data because they have privacy concerns and, and how, how does the partnership 
address those concerns. Yeah, and I think for us, um, there's always questions of privacy. I think we were make way more concerned about privacy than maybe our participants even were to some degree, and that's a good place to be. We we want them to feel comfortable, um, but I do. I think people are becoming more comfortable with sharing the date their data as they start to understand at least a fraction of how much data is really shared on their personal computing device that they carry with them every single place that they go. Um, I think as more people start to understand the extent of data that might be shared from, say, their car, um, specifically, I'm, you know, I, here's an example I always give. If I could get access to windshield wiper data, whose windshield wipers and headlights are on in different areas of the city, I could, and during wintertime, I could make more targeted um, deployments of snowplows. So how do I get that data for a reasonable cost to help me serve my residents in a better and more strategic way? And I think as more people become aware of that, I think they're going to be a little more concerned about privacy is like, well, do they know it's me out there when it's, you know, really it's just an aggregation of the use of all of you out there. So I think we're going to have this where people are constantly becoming a little bit more aware um, but we we did face some of that, and it was more from people that were probably what considered themselves watchdogs, and um, than the participants in our program. But we took we took data privacy, data and privacy very seriously. Mandy, I'd like to step beyond um, Smart City Columbus for a moment and talk about transportation in general, and uh, let's say rail. Now, Columbus is the second largest city in America that doesn't have Amtrak service. And I know that that's one of the areas where Amtrak wants to expand. So is that a, is that a problem from your point of view? And what about um, intercity rail service? How can that enhance transportation in Columbus? So when you think about transportation and when you think about resiliency, Multiple modes of transportation provide a resiliency that this country has to have. Um, and passenger rail travel can provide that re- that resiliency um, and that secondary uh, transportation opportunity uh, to air. And prior to the pandemic, we were really seeing our skies have some limited capacity with respect to our air traffic controllers. Um, so having another mode that can also provide that intercity um, opportunity is crucial to, I would say, homeland security. Um, and, and, you know, as they continue to develop the passenger rail corridors and think more about it, we need to look at those types of issues and uh, challenges. And is that a secondary opportunity uh, to make sure that we can have a good, uh, strong transportation network that includes many modes. When I heard you talking a moment ago about uh, resiliency, uh, it made me think of the infrastructure proposal that that the White House is putting together uh, and and kind of making our our infrastructure more resilient overall seems to be a big theme in that, uh, especially now as we get down to the the nitty gritty and they're they're putting the what I think are the final uh, touches on the infrastructure bill. Uh, curious to how, how you would view Columbus as a, uh, in the smart city challenge particular as a, a precursor to that in some sense, like what, what lessons should the federal government take, uh, from the smart city challenge and what you've experienced in Columbus firsthand 
as it kind of crafts this infrastructure bill that ostensibly shapes the country for, for the next 20, 30 years, if not longer. Oh my goodness. Um, that partnerships are key, that um, the technology really needs to be deployed or the infrastructure really needs to be deployed in a way that helps our underserved communities excel and rise, um, which I'm seeing a lot of the language in the bill that it's how it's executed will be, you know, the proof is in the pudding, if you will. Um, and that technology has the opportunity to really draw some efficiency. Just going back to the rail example, resiliency is a, a big, you know, we think about rail and we want that rail, um, but also rails have become digital. So if we can really um, look at opportunities to pair traditional passenger rail with some of our, um, you know, using some of our highway infrastructure, we really need to look at it in a new and different way and, and look at the system, not just the that one component. From a personal perspective, Mandy, when you look back, maybe next year or a couple of years from now on your experience with the Smart City Challenge in Smart City Columbus, what will you remember most? What will you be the most proud of in terms of achievements? Um, the people, uh, the people that we served uh, in the, the people that we served um, with the projects and the people that helped deliver the projects. Those are the things that I reflect um, back on the most uh, one of my favorite uh, participants is a gentleman named Jose, who used our mobility assistance for people with cognitive disabilities um, application called Wayfinder. Uh, it's built by a company called AbleLink. And that um, application gave him the confidence to explore Columbus in a, a more meaningful way, not just to go to doctor's appointments or work. He was able to go out for a coffee at the North Market or a new, it's a, it's a place with a lot of international flavors. And just the joy in his voice when he talked about it and the smile on his face, um, that's what I remember most. Mandy, it's been great having you on the podcast today. Uh, any closing thoughts on, on the legacy of the Smart City Challenge here five years after, after it started in Columbus? Oh, my goodness. Um, I just hope that when people look back five years ago, five years from now, that they go, man, that was so 2020 technology. <laughs> Um, I can't wait to, you know, I, I think the legacy we, legacy we leave behind is one that um, should challenge most people and make them want to take risk, which is what we did. As government, a government agency, we don't often taste, we don't like to take risk. We're risk adverse, but I think we have a responsibility to innovate and try new things so that we can serve our residents in new and better ways. Great. Thank you, Mandy. Great talking to you again today. Oh, thank you, Pete. Thank you, Leslie. Another interesting conversation in the books, Pete. Um, I guess as Columbus goes, so goes the nation. I'm curious about your uh, takeaways from that conversation with Mandy. You know, a lot of interesting stuff, Leslie. I think uh, it's kind of nice to reflect back on what we thought were going to be the big things five years ago. And and in some cases, uh, spot on. Uh, in others, uh, Obviously, self-driving shuttles are still around the corner and, and not quite here in, in true driverless uh, widespread use. So that was an interesting takeaway, as was their work on uh, developing apps that can you know, simply serve residents uh, better and help them with their transportation needs. So uh, thanks again to Mandy for coming on. And uh, Leslie, who's up next week?
Next week, we are continuing um, our streak of really great guests. We are going to feature Mark Rosekind. And many of you may remember that name. Mark was the head of NHTSA during the Obama administration. Mark is now the Chief Safety Innovation Officer at Zooks. Uh, we were talking about driverless shuttles. So um, we're going to hear what's going on with safety and a little bit about what's happening with Zooks and some of Mark's thoughts on other issues of the day. So please join us for that show. Thank you so much, everybody. And a special thanks to our producer, Eric Jones. See you next week.